Grace is the power to obey the impossible. It's also the restoration of innocence. And more importantly than anything that it does, it's who grace is. Grace is Jesus. You don't have Jesus without grace. You don't have grace without Jesus. It's a package deal. One comes with the other. And today, this is going to be a serious version of the Reckless Grace podcast. And whenever I say something's going to be serious, it's usually not. But what I mean is I intend to do some serious teaching on the topic of grace. Because this topic of grace and identity that actually empowers us to not only surrender to obey the impossible, but restores us to the innocence of being the righteousness of God in Christ. That is the rescue mission of God to the world. This world that's gone very mad as to who we are and who he is And we've got a twisted, faulty perception of the nature of God and the nature of man. And today, I kind of want to bring an end to it. Although, maybe this is more the beginning of the end. Because the process of letting your perception of your sin nature die once and for all, uh, that process can be kind of like, you know, kind of like people used to die in old westerns. It just seemed like they would just come back over and over again, or, or more like more like the horror movies, you know, where the guy's chasing the girl through the house, and she finally clocks him over the head with a wine bottle, and then she sits down on the floor with her back to the killer. And you ever wonder, what in the world are you doing? And then in the background, you see the guy sit up, or she turns to look away, and when she looks back, he's gone. That's kind of like our perception of our old nature. Listen, your old dead nature died with Christ on the cross. And when God raised Jesus to life, he didn't give you a brand new sin nature. He restored you to freedom. And that freedom comes with it. The ability to surrender to the voice of God or to do something completely contrary to his heart. And today we're going to talk about how grace draws us in with an empowering favor of heaven to not just obey the impossible, but to discover how innocent you are, to impart to you the very righteousness of God in Christ so that your innocence is restored. Hey, welcome to the Reckless Grace podcast. And if you don't learn anything else in this podcast today, just never turn your back on the killer, all right? What is the answer to much of the turmoil our nation is facing today? Have you found that the issues that 2020 brought to the surface have challenged your relationships? Perhaps it even destroyed some of your relationships. Join with Bill Vanderbush and co-writer Britt Eaton as they unfold the answer to these questions and more in their book, Reckless Grace. What is this grace that Jesus put on display and why is it even referred to as reckless? Many readers have found healing on a deep, deep level as they've applied this message of grace to their families, businesses, and marriages. Doors have opened for them in areas they never would have dreamed possible. It's time for the world to heal. It's time for reckless grace, the reckless grace of God to invade and come on in full force and be evident in his people. Reckless grace is available on amazon.com or Bill's website, billvanderbush.com. The scandal of grace is so offensive, for it reveals the uncomfortable reality that the redemptive power of God is able to take every single person, people from wicked Old Testament kings like Manasseh, to religious New Testament Pharisees like Paul, and restore them. 
And to the self-righteous, the gospel will always be offensive. But to the rest of us, in other words, to those who know that we have no power to save ourselves, this is resurrection life and it's resurrection power. So to take you into the revelation of this new covenant grace that we've been so freely given, I want to take you to the old covenant prayer that God gave the priests out of Numbers chapter 6. And we're going to start here today. This prayer is the Aaronic blessing, not the erotic blessing, the Aaronic blessing, as in Aaron, the high priest, Aaron, the Aaronic blessing. God gave this blessing to to us to basically give us a revelation of his heart. And, and in this prayer, God literally tells the people that he is blessing them, but he tells a priest to ask him for it. You got to really stop and think about this because it's a bit of a head twister. And I know everybody's heard the Carrie Job song, The Blessing, and it's been turned into a wonderful, beautiful worship song. And, and I hope that a lot of people have learned this blessing through there, but there's a line in it that you've got to know. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord causes face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So in the middle of this blessing, this is a line that I want to hold on to here. It says, the Lord be gracious to you. Now, God told the priest to pray this prayer. This is God saying to the priest, I want you to ask me for something for these people. So God is training these priests on how to appeal to his heart. Now, God wouldn't ask us to appeal to his heart if it wasn't his nature to release something upon us. So when he asks the priest, ask me to be gracious, it makes me wonder if a lot of times why we don't see grace in the Old Testament is because the priests weren't doing their job. See, God, God is not like bound to our requests, but he does seem to have a value for relationship and thus interaction. And so it's almost like he'll sit there and look at you and say, you know, what do you want? Who do you say that I am? All these things. He's asking questions of us, not because he's lacking in information, but because he's drawing something out of us. And so you think about it like this that God literally tells the priests in that prayer to ask him to bless the people with a declaration that includes the phrase, be gracious. It's an odd thing to consider that God would wait for us to care enough about somebody else to ask him to do what we know is in his heart to do. Why make us the broker here? He's good. We have a hard time caring about those who need grace. So keep us out of the loop, God. But that's not the way he wants it. Even in the New Testament, Jesus issues the challenge once again to take ownership of releasing grace to others. That's actually the core of the book that Britt Eaton and I wrote together, Reckless Grace, which is the name of this podcast. And it all centers around the verse John 20, 23, where Jesus says, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. See, it's the, it's the new covenant invitation that parallels the old covenant invitation to the priests. I want you to ask me to be gracious to these people. In other words, you take responsibility to release grace over people. Now, see, we won't ask God to be gracious over people that we don't want to be gracious to. It's not a test of God's character. It's a test of ours. 
It's not an exposure of God's heart. It's an exposure of ours. And so when Jesus comes back to us in John 20, 23, right after the resurrection, and he breathes on us, breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit and whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. What has he done? He's just unleashed the priesthood of the believer. That's right. You're a priest. I'm a priest. I know the Catholics won't much care about this, but, but the reality is that God has made us in Christ kings and priests unto God. You say, biblically, how can you even begin to support this? Well, not only does Revelation 5 tell us, but the reality is that if Jesus, the great high priest, according to Hebrews, if he dwells within you, then his identity becomes your inheritance. And that means that you and I stand in a place where we have the capacity to actually represent his heart. And we've got to do it well. When we don't do it well, people are very confused about his character. Now, this challenge of releasing grace, I get it. This is a big one. The question is, can you care enough about somebody else? Maybe people who don't even deserve it, according to your your perspective. Do you care enough about them to ask God to bless them, keep them, smile upon them, and give grace to them? Did you know in the Bible, every time somebody asked God for grace or mercy, he released it to them in some measure. Jesus said, freely you've received, freely give. If we don't know what we've been given, we won't know what we have to give away. Our inability, I think, sometimes to release grace demonstrates that we don't fully know how much God has actually given to us. And I see books about grace criticizing this thing of grace, scared to death that people are going to use it as a license to sin. People say, Billy, you're giving away licenses to sin? Are you kidding me? I wouldn't give away a license to sin. I'd sell those things. You know how much those things would be worth? Man, you print off licenses to sin, sell them in church, could build that new wing of the church you've been wanting to build. I mean, those things would be, here's the deal. Look, I'm joking here, right? But understand, people in and out of church, have been sinning just fine without a license. They don't need your permission to sin. What they need is your permission to be free from sin. See, our criticism, when people criticize grace, they, they criticize it as a weak message, a license to sin. Listen, ridiculous ideas like that demonstrate that we don't even know what God has freely given to us. I'll tell you this from 30 years of ministry. If you want praise and the applause of man, preach judgment. Preach it like crazy. You'll get pats on the back and attaboys all day long. But if you want to get criticized and slammed, preach grace. Preach the love of God, undiluted, straight in all its power and all of its love. See, without the grace of Christ... Without the reality of our reconciled union in him, being born again, being filled with the spirit and being consistently aware of that ongoing filling presence would be impossible right now. You can work your way into that stuff. You can't strive to be worthy to say yes to any of it. It's only by the grace of God that any of us have the ability to be born again or be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's only through the grace of God that we surrender to allow his love to overtake us. 
And it's my prayer that today will lead you on a journey into coming to a realization of how amazing this grace actually is. I want you to go back with me to John chapter 20, and this is kind of the heart of the book, Reckless Grace. It's been three absolutely unbearable days. The disciples have been huddled together in this this secret room, having probably the most depressing prayer meeting ever. Why? Because Jesus, their rabbi, their master, their teacher, their friend, just died. He was just murdered. With the law crushing them and their Messiah literally slain, the disciples, they have nothing left but each other. So they hide. And seemingly without any hope left in the world. And suddenly, in that moment, the unthinkable happens. Out of nowhere, they hear a familiar voice say these words, peace to you. And Jesus appears to them in the flesh and he literally is standing there now. And he says, peace to you. Says it a couple of times, which is what you would have to say if you appeared in the middle of a locked room to people who thought you were dead. He he says this and gives us a clue to the physical and emotional responses that his appearance must have triggered. Fear, uh, shock, disbelief, and then wild amazement, unspeakable joy, maybe laughter, tears, warm embraces. Listen, as plot twists go, this was one for the history books. Christ is risen just like he said he would. It really is finished. Sin and death are done. But Jesus is just getting started. Jesus stands there right before his disciples who represent you and me and all believers. And then he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Listen, Jesus right now in that moment, he is restoring God's image and likeness back to his creation. But what Jesus says right then next is absolutely shocking. After more than a decade, I got to say, of preaching on this verse, this verse still offends my mind. Yet this passage is the scriptural linchpin for the gift of God's grace. And I pray it stirs your heart and changes not only your life, but the lives of those around you who desperately need the grace of God. John chapter 20 and verse 23 reads, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Have you ever read this verse and thought, What? Like, what in the world did you just say, Jesus? So think about this verse for just a moment and let these words soak in. If you forgive the sins of any, that's anybody else, not just the people who sinned against you, that pretty much opens it up to everybody. If you forgive the sins of any other person, they are forgiven. And then he goes on to basically say, if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, the second part of that verse, if you retain the sins of any, there's an entire chapter on that section of the verse that's really important in the book, Reckless Grace. I encourage you to get it because listen, that part of the verse shouldn't strike fear into your heart. 
all right? Because this is love that is speaking to you and perfect love casts out fear. God is love, perfect love casts out fear. So anytime love says something to you that actually causes you to partner with a spirit of fear, you misunderstood what love said. You say, how is that even possible? If he speaks, I'll automatically have the right response. No, that isn't actually the way it works. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says to them, listen, I'm talking to you so that my joy would remain and your joy might be full, but sorrow is filling your heart. In other words, you're choosing a wrong response because you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. If we don't understand what he says, if we don't understand the heart behind the words, we'll open ourselves up to receive a spirit that is contrary to the one who's speaking. So it's really important that you catch this. The second part of that verse is actually incredibly beautiful, but you're going to have to get the book in order to, to, to read. I know that sounds like a terrible sales pitch, doesn't it? But it makes my publisher really happy when I do that. Okay. Now look, I, I can imagine if you look at that verse, John 20, 23, you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. I'm, I imagine you're probably thinking right now, okay. And I'm guessing the disciples were thinking this too. Hold up, Jesus. Only God has the power to forgive sins. I can't do that. Only God can do that. And you know what? That is a verse in the Bible. But where'd you hear that? Who told you that only God has the power to forgive sins? So just suspend your disbelief with me for a little bit here. Up to this point, everything Jesus ever did on earth, another person also did in his name. So let's unpack some of these signs and wonders and miracles. Walking on water? Check. Jesus did it and Peter did it. Admittedly, Peter wasn't great at it, but in Matthew 14, 22, he actually did it. Uh, miraculous transportation, suddenly being in one place and then being in another place. Jesus did it and a guy named Philip did it too. I mean, he zapped from zip code to zip code in a blink of an eye in order to share the gospel in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. How about multiplying food? Well, Jesus did it but his disciples also did it. The food multiplied at their hands, and the result was that thousands of people were physically and spiritually fed, Matthew 14, Mark 8. How about healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead? Jesus gave his disciples power and authority to do all these things in his name in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8. But listen, he doesn't stop there. You skip ahead to John's gospel, just before the ascension, in John chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, Jesus gives uh, to all believers in him the same power and authority he gave his disciples. You, listen, you and I have been given power and authority to do even greater things than Jesus displayed so long as you do them in his name. This is your current reality. Your power and authority as a believer are a direct outpouring of your identity in Christ fully embraced. Can I say that again? Your power and authority as a believer are a direct outpouring of your identity in Christ fully embraced. So everything Jesus did, another person also did except for one, the forgiveness of sins. And even now, extending grace, I mean in a meaningful way, that actually sets people free in our mind and theirs, it, it's the one thing we still have a hard time with. 
Listen, we're far more comfortable declaring physical healing than we are extending grace. It's bizarre when you think about it. As spirit-filled believers, we want all the signs and the wonders, and, and I think people are clamoring for the supernatural wow factor in everything. And, and we think uh, we mean it when we cry out, more, Lord, but releasing forgiveness through the reckless grace, the love of God. That's the greatest supernatural gift that Jesus imparts to us. And we know it's true because he saves this, this gift, his best gift for the very last. After creation, we fall. After the resurrection, we're restored to our original identity. And out of that identity came power and authority in the spirit realm. Jesus, and don't get freaked out about the word realm, just, it's just a place of dominion, a place of authority. It's, if you live in Texas, it's the realm of Texas, okay? We just call it a state. We call it a nation. It's just an area over which you have authority. Where does God have authority? everywhere. But there's a physical realm and there's a spiritual realm. There's an angelic and a demonic presence that you and I can't perceive with our physical eyes easily, but it's there. It's a reality. The reality of the spiritual realm is that the realm of the physical and the spiritual can actually occupy the same place at the same time, but you and I can perhaps only be aware of one and it's hard to be aware of the other unless you allow yourself to believe that it's real, then all of a sudden you start to notice the activity from that realm happening all around you. Jesus had already by this point given authority to cast out demons and disease before his death, but it wasn't until after the resurrection that he invites us to represent him in everything, including his grace. You remember in in, uh, Matthew, when he resurrects from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Uh, Ephesians chapter three, verse 10 says that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities and powers in heavenly places, which means you and I literally are given access to knowledge, wisdom, understanding, and authority that beings in the spiritual realm don't even have. Right? So it is possible to stand in this physical realm and have the ability to exercise authority in the spiritual realm. But you won't exercise an authority in a realm that you're not aware of. Right, So when we release the grace of Christ, we're not just hoping people are going to intellectually understand what we're saying. There's a spiritual power that's released in that moment that actually gives people access to a freedom in a spiritual realm that they never had before. So suddenly the grace of God floods into a person's heart and they begin to believe that they're forgiven. See, Christ alone erases your sin. You and I don't do that. Christ does that. When we release grace, all we're doing is choosing to come into agreement with him by aligning ourselves with the redemption of the cross. Romans chapter four, verse 25 reads like this. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised because of our justification. When you and I withhold forgiveness, you fail to recognize the power of the cross. You misrepresent Christ and the world remains blind to the love and the grace of the father. The gospel of Jesus, it's offensive to our post-Christian culture and for good reason. It almost always comes down to radical grace. 
A grace that makes no sense by earthly standards. Grace that we can't possibly steward faithfully in our own strength. God's given you and I this gift of radical, unthinkable, supernatural grace, and you are uniquely suited to walk that grace out, to give it away, to help bring God's kingdom here and now. So what is grace, really? It's not what you think. It's not a thing. It's not a thought. It's not a feeling. It's a person. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of grace. He was and is grace. And what's more, he imparted it to all believers in the upper room that night. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 38 tell the story of this as well. And here's the big question about John chapter 20 and verse 23, and it changes everything. Was Jesus serious? Was he joking? Was he giving us an option? We've got to deal with the ramifications of what it means for human relationships if he indeed meant for us to love our enemies. If we forgive others' sins, they are forgiven. If they retain them, they are retained. Does he mean that literally as, or as some part of uh, some unattainable religious ideal? Does he actually mean that we are meant to demonstrate grace like God does? And, and that if we don't, there are eternal consequences for us and the ones we won't forgive? Listen, I don't know about you. But the red letter words of Jesus are the ones I really take to heart in full context in light of how Jesus intended them. After his resurrection, Jesus speaks plainly to his disciples. No metaphors, no analogies, no room for interpretation. So yeah, Jesus is serious. He wants you to walk in his divine gift of radical grace, but he hasn't taken away your options. He won't twist your arm and make you do the righteous thing. Walking in this radical grace is a conscious decision you get to make. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a choice. Not just a choice to forgive, but also a choice to come into agreement with God about what he thinks about other people, about what he believes about somebody else. Extending grace is an opportunity to come into agreement with the redeeming love of God who keeps no record of wrongs and commands you and I to love our enemies. An opportunity that not only brings freedom to you, but it also gives them, others, the opportunity of an encounter with Jesus Christ. Listen, at first, giving grace away, especially to an enemy, can feel like death. Surrender often does. But in time... It becomes an outpouring of the radical grace you've received in your own life. Do you struggle to extend grace and forgiveness? Do you struggle to receive grace and forgiveness? Many believers do. I do too. The truth is, we can't do anything of God in our own strength. You can't heal in your own strength. You can't cast out demons in your own strength. You can't hold on to faith in your own strength. And you can't give grace away in your own strength. Why do we think we have to strive for grace when it's already been freely given? Thankfully, God loves to use the weakest, most unqualified people to bring about his kingdom in ways only he could be responsible for. If you're somebody who struggles with offense and unforgiveness for others or for yourself, God's ready to obliterate your disbelief through a fresh release of his radical grace. Grace manifested in your own life is miraculously uncomplicated. It simply means coming into agreement with God about what he believes about others 
and about you. Sounds easy, right? How do you know if you're agreeing with God? So search your heart today with these two critically important questions. Is there anyone you hold an offense against? Just pause. Go ahead and pause the podcast and search your heart for just a moment. Okay, now, do you have a, quote-unquote, that person in your life? A person you genuinely struggle to extend grace to? And second question is this. Is there anyone God wouldn't forgive? Do you hold an offense against someone even God wouldn't hold? That that person, quote-unquote, the person you may be thinking about is the hardest person to forgive, would God give grace away to that person? And would you be offended at God if he did? Maybe that person came to mind immediately. Your coworker, your ex, the guy who flipped you off in traffic this morning, maybe even the authority figure or political leader uh, th- that you voted or didn't vote for came to mind. Listen, Jesus lays it out clearly in the seventh line of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The assumption here is that you have forgiven. The phrase is the foundation of what it means to come into agreement with God, and it clearly displays the kind of grace he wants you to actually have. So your quote-unquote that person identified uh, may be someone you consider an enemy. And if this is true, you probably never say it aloud, you're missing out on the opportunity to live out the fullness of the grace that God has given you. Enemy, in fact, is actually a false mental construct created by people carrying offense at the transgressions of somebody else. The earthly label gives us a perceived license to hate, a right to withhold grace, a justification to carry offense to the death like some badge of honor. But the truth is this, nobody gets to be your enemy without your permission. King David marveled at how the Lord prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Psalm 23, 5. Why would God do such a thing? Simple. You can be a living invitation for your enemy to realize his true identity and to become your brother. I say to you who hear, it's in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, love your enemies. This is Jesus talking. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he's just as serious as when he releases the authority to forgive sins in the upper room. Both concepts, equally radical, pierce us to the core. It's a reckless call to unity and oneness that simply makes no sense in this world. When you walk in your true identity in Christ, you won't be able to see people as enemies, but as broken beings who desperately need to encounter the God of grace. And when all else fails, love truly wins, for God is love, and God wins. Maybe you're the one who sinned against another and against God, and you're stuck in a cycle of sin and shame. The only thing more difficult than forgiving someone else is forgiving yourself. Here's the funny thing about grace. There's a divine order to it, and it differentiates between grace as a gift and grace as a reward. Grace starts as a gift from the Father, 
released to us through Jesus Christ, not because we've earned it, but before we could even know to ask for it. The grace we're called to extend to others through forgiveness of sins isn't something we do to earn God's grace in return. It's something we do as a natural overflow of the radical grace we've already received. You can't give away what you have not first received. And you must receive the grace as a gift before you can give it. And you must give grace as an overflow of that gift before you can receive grace as a reward from God. You probably have to go back and listen to that about 10 times to get the train of thought. But the best way to move forward in forgiving yourself is this. I'll make this real easy. Give grace away. Extend the grace that you've been given to somebody who doesn't deserve it just like you. A common phrase to hear in church before an offering goes like this, give and it shall be given unto you. It comes from Luke 6 verse 38. You ready for a shocking revelation? That passage has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with grace. Listen, I'm all for radical generosity in our giving, but this is yet another instance where context is really a big deal. If Jesus was serious when he imparted grace in John 20, 23, what does that mean for our lives? We'd have to take inventory of how much grace we're releasing. We have to take an honest look at how much grace we're receiving. We'd have to take responsibility for a world that doesn't know grace is right within reach. If Jesus wasn't serious, we can assume that it's not within our power to forgive sins. And if that's true, so is the following. Jesus may forgive you, but I don't have to. And don't a lot of people live like that? If you're not careful, you can justify offense and unforgiveness in your own heart just by saying, I'm going to leave grace up to God. He can forgive whoever he wants to. Darrell, that's what he told Moses. I'll be gracious to who I'll be gracious to. But the challenge of John 20, 23 is that Jesus is calling every single one of us to put on display the amount of grace we believe God is giving away not just to the world, but also to ourselves. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors. In case you're still confused, let's break that down for a moment. If you don't forgive, the Father won't forgive you. If you do forgive, the Father will forgive you. It comes right after the Lord's Prayer. And for many of us, it may have sounded like a threat, especially growing up. But it's actually an incredibly powerful tool in unleashing the power of God's grace gift in your life. The best part? You don't have to figure it out. Like any other sign or wonder, grace isn't something for you to boast in or or try to own in your own flesh. God's the one who heals. He's the one who restores. He's the source of all grace and forgiveness. He just chooses to invite us into what he's up to by giving us power and authority as his children. He invites us to personally usher in the kingdom of God through his manifest grace, not because our salvation is dependent upon it, but because we are his children. We're his kids. If you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been adopted into God's family. It's unlike any earthly adoption you've ever heard of. Kingdom adoption is the awakening to who you truly are in Christ as a beloved son or daughter of the King by a new birthright. And out of that new identity in Christ, we learn to be more like our Abba, our Father, to look like Him, to act like Him, and to extend grace and forgiveness just like Him. 
God loves you so much that he wants you to have an opportunity to get in on the goodness of his radical grace. It's just what you do as part of the family. God's grace, it's reckless by the world standards, but it's no more than what you've already received. God wants you to focus on him in this learning process, not your own willingness to forgive or lack thereof. As always, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. And from that place of humility, of coming into agreement with God, you and I can begin to scratch the surface of what reckless grace unleashed really looks like. I hope you'll stick with this podcast throughout the rest of the year. I think we're going to go some places that are going to bring freedom, not just to your heart, but bring freedom through you to impact the world around you. Thank you so much for your love and support. You make it possible for Bill and I to keep this message of Jesus Christ and our union with Him and our union with others going around the world. We're thankful for every open door, not only in the United States, but in places like Ireland, England, Scotland, France, Germany, and so many more. We're always encouraged as we find fires of God burning in each place we go. We value your prayers more than you can imagine. If you feel compelled to partner with us, go to billvanderbush.com. And we would love to hear from you. If you'd like to write a letter, please send that to Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. That's Faith Mountain Ministries, P.O. Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258.